Reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 How long have we known better to no avail? Why do we keep abandoning the worthy story in favor of the dubious plots? We've used that metaphor of the worthy story. The worthy story is that we is the miracle of life, miracle of life, the miracle of consciousness. We're alive on this rare planet that sustains life. We are uh, aware of our existence. We're thrilled and terrified by its exigencies. Uh, the mystery of the the unfathomable cosmos and so on, the huge universe we live in, space and time, truly a mysterious and wonderful uh, story to be living in and we abandon it all the time in favor of these little sociodramas that have absolutely no inherent meaning and the question is why do we do that how long have we known better to no avail i, I share a couple of gerard quotes primitive societies are almost as loath to think these matters through as structuralism itself. Structuralism is the modern dominant anthropological theory. And he says, because the uh, anthropologists be, have been reluctant to take a look at the sacrificial feature of human culture, he says they spend all their time talking about stuff on the periphery. He says, quote, this discourse, the anthropological discourse, this discourse can go on endlessly without being interrupted by a disturbing question. From now on, we will learn everything there is to learn about the contrasted significance of rare, medium rare, and well done in the cannibalistic feast. But of cannibalism itself, there will be no question. <laughs> so we're around the edges of it, you see, but not really taking a look at the core event. Why are we reluctant to reveal that core event? Let me use the metaphors of this play. Now, this play is talking about a war, the Trojan War, the archetypal war of all time. War is a sacrificial episode. But let's not just think of it in terms of war. War is one of the few surviving sacrificial institutions that still doesn't awaken widespread uh, moral revulsion. It's accepted, even though we, we don't like war, it's accepted as what you have to do when you have to do something. So we ask ourselves, if there's a sacrificial ritual going on, why do we endure it? Uh, why are we, do we have an aversion to recognizing it for what it is? And that's what this play is about. Agamemnon, in uh, scene three of Act One, had asked the question, why must we endure what we're having to endure in this war. We're dying like flies out there on the plains of Troy. Why do we have to do this year in and year out? You see, the question doesn't even rise until you're years into the war. Finally, somebody says, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And Agamemnon says, why do we have to endure this? And he says, the fineness of our metal is not found in fortune's love. When things are going along swimmingly, we, we, we can't distinguish ourselves. For then, he says, the bold and coward, wise and fool, artist and unread, hard and soft, seem all affined and kin. You can't tell one from another. Everything's going along and 
you don't know who the brave ones are and the cowards and who the wise ones are and the witless ones. But, he says, in the wind and tempest of her frown, fortune's frown, distinction with a broad and powerful fan, puffing it all, winnows the light away. And what hath mass or matter by itself lies rich in virtue and unmingled. See, in, the, in, this, in this struggle, we find out who really is brave and who's a coward and so on and so forth. Because in this struggle, distinction reasserts itself. Distinction with a broad and powerful fan, puffing it all, winnows the light away. I don't know if Shakespeare had a pun intended here, but I think I, I, I like to read one into it. Winnows the light away. Not only the light in the sense of what doesn't weigh much, but also the light in the sense of insight, enlightenment. In other words, it's a, an obscurity takes over at the same time these distinctions are coming into place. And we think these distinctions are fundamental. We think now we have, now we know who's who in the social hierarchy. Here's where the long-winded stuff comes in. I apologize. Like a universe, a galaxy, a solar system, or an atom, culture cannot configure itself unless there is sufficient matter at its core to overcome the centrifugal social energies with more compelling centripetal energy. In social and cultural organization, what corresponds to the gravitational force in physics is the cultic center. Aphoristically, this is funny because when I started to write this sentence, I was going to have a little aphorism. So I was typing it out, aphoristically, comma, and then the sentence just went on and on and on, became a paragraph. So this isn't an aphorism at all, but this is the way it came out. Aphoristically, uh, one could put it this way. Culture will lack the requisite bonding forces and therefore disqualify itself as culture Unless at its center it hallows a distinction so sacred, so transcendent, so inviolable that its transgression results in death. In fact, this distinction in the most primitive setting is recognized only after it has resulted in a death. Only after a more or less spontaneous lynching has put an end to an episode of mob frenzy. The identification of the distinction which the victim transgressed and for which transgression he died is made afterward with the help of myth, ritual, and taboo. Remember the death of Aaron's two sons in the story in Leviticus 10. won't take time to go into that, but we quoted it some weeks ago, and, and that's a classic example of this. The mob violence is mythologized, sacralized, and made the basis for the tribe's most sacrosanct code of conduct, at the center of which will be a distinction which is the inverse of the victim's supposed transgression. The transgressions typically attributed to the victim are incest, fratricide, or some other unspeakable sacrilege. After the mob murder that terminates the crisis, the transgression that the myth attributes retrospectively to the victim is converted into the cult's ultimate prohibition. All subsequent distinctions and their attendant systems of emulation and prohibition are derivative of this primary one. All the distinctions in culture are, so to speak, cantilevered out 
from this central one and structurally consistent with it. Because the truth of this process, especially its essential arbitrariness, would be fatal to the culture in question, every effort is made to maintain the mythologized version of it. And since no culture becomes a culture unless it succeeds in camouflaging the lynching in mythology, cult ritual, and codes, the sacrificial nucleus of culture cannot be discovered by direct empirical methods. It must be postulated in the same way that comparable postulations are made in physics. In the, in the way, for instance, that black holes can only be explained by hypothesizing a nuclear mass so enormous that even light itself is trapped by its gravitational field, which I think is a, is a very apt analogy for what we're talking about. Likewise, the core cultural event is surrounded by myth, ritual, and prohibition that mystify and occlude its essence from casual observers. The culture's myth, ritual, and prohibitions maintain and service a system of distinctions by which social life becomes intelligible. These derivative distinctions elaborate themselves out from and in concert with the original primal culture-generating distinction, forming the social gestalt within which resident members of the culture are given the paths and patterns of social life. Since the core event, the founding sacrificial drama, is invisible behind myth, ritual, and prohibitions, its mass and therefore capacity to provide the requisite gravitational field can only be deduced from its effects on more observable social structures. A noticeable weakening, for instance, of the derivative social distinctions, for example, the distinction between masters and servants, righteous and the wretched, the priest and the prostitutes, an observable blurring of these distinctions will alert the trained mind to a corresponding weakening of the unobservable sacrificial core distinction and portend a cultural crisis which will have as its unspoken goal the repair, reinstitution, or replacement of the culture's primary distinction. The world's great literary artists from Homer to T.S. Eliot have focused their fascination on those moments in cultural life when just such a crisis is occurring. It is as though artistic genius realizes, however vaguely, that these moments when the cultural mist is dispersing are the moments of truth. And they congregate around them like investigative journalists trying to file their stories before the fogs return. Or perhaps we must reinterpret the relationship between genius and cultural crises somewhat the other way around and say that in addition to the artist's inherent talent, his or her struggle to express the truth has been greatly aided by the fact that it is occurring at a moment when the cultural myth has become relatively transparent. The old Chinese adage that one must pray not to live in interesting times may contain a truth we are on the threshold of rediscovering, but creative artists may ignore it for the sake of their art, the way brave meteorologists fly their little twin-engine planes into the hurricane to study its behavior. question then is, why is the crisis, contemporary crisis now, happening? Shakespeare is investigating the crisis in 1600. The crisis that we are experiencing in our time is simply the same crisis 400 years later. Why is it occurring? 
And the astounding answer is the Gospels. The anthropological drama at the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures centers around the attempt to found and sustain a culture with a compromised sacrificial event at its center, one involving a non-human victim. The repeated crises precipitated by this unprecedented experiment and the religious innovations introduced in response to them have been documented in the priceless text of the Hebrew Bible. As we gradually recognize that in considerable degree because of their influence, these texts explore the anthropological developments that are now being thrust willy-nilly upon all culture, we will be turning to these texts with renewed attention because as the present crisis unfolds, we will realize that what we are reading there in these biblical texts is not our past but our future. Progressively, the biblical texts have removed more and more of the culturally essential myth, ritual, and prohibition, and in doing so, exposed the sacrificial core event to more illumination than is comparable with its smooth function. The New Testament is the documenting of the last of these crises, the definitive one, the crucifixion, which once we recognize what it means becomes, as John's Gospel points out, synonymous with the resurrection. The culminating biblical revelation exposes the sacrificial event fully, removes entirely the mythological, religious, and ritual mystifications which provided its necessary obscurity. Without these mystifications, the whole cultural enterprise is compromised. The gospel's revealing of the unavoidably arbitrary distinctions by which it is all kept enticing inflicts a fatal wound on the whole cultural system. But the question remains, why, why do we have an aversion to recognizing what's going on? Why do we agree with Agamemnon that we must endure these things? Agamemnon is really speaking the Caiaphas wisdom, you know. It's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. He's saying it's better that that uh, we, we go ahead and throw these corpses at one another so that when we get back home, we'll know who, who has how many stripes on their arm and we'll then have a, a cultural, social system in place. We'll know who goes, gets to walk through the door first, who gets to sit at the head of the table, who gets to speak in the, in the council, etc., and who follows orders as they're told. Culture provides a grid, a chessboard, which consists of an elaborate system of coordinates, from the crude ones to the subtle ones, that give all the players in the game more or less a clear feeling of where they are and how they're doing. These coordinates constitute the moral, legal, economic, political, psychological, and aesthetic laws, which we learn to obey or transgress in terms of the variation on the basic social game with which we have become identified. By adulthood, most of us have personalities inseparable from the web of social myth in which all these play a part. We have, to put it mildly, what to us feels like an enormous stake in the maintenance of that myth, or at least some variation of it that retains its essential presuppositions. Who could play chess without the board? Three-dimensional chess for the artistic and intellectual elite? Fine. Checkers for the simple people? Fine. But to abandon the entire, the entire construct 
to come to see against the grain of all one's social imprinting the essential arbitrary nature of the valorized grid is to face the essential existential problem that Hamlet faced. Girard says, the all-purpose differentiating machine is beginning to look like a played-out toy, a primitive noisemaker that must be agitated more and more wildly to keep the public and even its own users at least mildly interested. What he's talking about here is culture. The all-purpose differentiating machine is culture. As, as more and more people uh, uh, drift away from a culture that has lost its gravitational uh, attraction, more and more of us have something of Hamlet's experience. Uh, for one who... And then Hamlet, of course, is written at the same time as this play. may have been written immediately before this Troilus and Cressida. Uh, and they really belong together in some way. Uh, but that was 1600. If we move... Uh, to 300 years into the future from there, we get to the narrator in Dostoevsky's uh, Notes from the Underground, and he represents someone who has, who has the Hamlet problem, which is the, the existential problem uh, par excellence, who has it in a more advanced stage. And he's having it in, he's having it in 1870. And here we are more than 100 years later. But here's what he says. Not only could I not become spiteful, I could not even become anything. Neither spiteful nor kind, neither a rascal nor an honest man, neither a hero nor an insect. Now I am living out my life in my corner, taunting myself with the spiteful and useless consolation that an intelligent man cannot seriously become anything and that only a fool can become something. Yet an intelligent man in the 19th century must and morally ought to be preeminently a characterless man. A man of character, an active man, is preeminently a limited creature. Now compare that to what Agamemnon has said about why we must endure this sacrificial episode. Because we have to sort out the characterless creatures from the, from the men of character. See? We have to sort out the rascals from the honest man, the heroes from the insects. And here you have the narrator of notes from the underground saying, all that's gone. It's not, a, not very appealing, but it's gaining on us. What I think the, the Gospels do for us is that they make it clear that all those distinctions, that the distinctions do not have ontological status, that they, that they are relative and arbitrary, and that the best way to deal with them is to treat them as transparent, which is not to throw them out, but to recognize them as transparent. You know, even somebody like Kipling says in the poem, If, if you can if you can walk with kings nor lose the common touch. You see, you have... That's a, that's a way of saying you, you allow those distinctions, but the, but the Gospels inform a different perception of that whole thing. Uh, Jean-Pierre de Cassade is a French contemplative who 
made this observation about uh, what happens when people enter into the uh, contemplative experience of life and how how their lives change and it's very interesting how their lives change he says their life shows nothing on the exterior but what is common and very ordinary they fulfill the duties of religion and of their state others as far as appearances go do the same as they examine the rest of their lives you will find nothing striking or special they are made up of the ordinary course of events what distinguishes them the dependence in which they live on the will of God, which arranges everything for them, does not fall under observation. When God gives himself to the soul in this way, the ordinary sequence of life becomes extraordinary. This is why nothing extraordinary happens outwardly, because it is extraordinary in itself, and consequently does not need the ornament of marvels which have nothing to do with it. In Act 2, Scene 2, all the relevant Trojans are gathered, at, in Priam's palace and Priam has gotten a message from Nestor the Greek and he says after so many hours lives speech is spent thus once again says Nestor from the Greeks quote deliver Helen and all damage else as honor loss of time travail expense wounds friends and what else dear that is consumed in hot digestion of this cormorant war shall be struck off Hector what say you to it so the proposal is from Nestor, give us Helen back, we'll call it off, we'll go home, you can return to your peaceful life. Uh, so why not? Seven or eight years into this war, that's the offer. Hector, after a lengthy introduction, says, let Helen go. And Troilus is outraged. Fie, brother, fie, weigh you the worth of the worth and honor of a king so great as our dread father in the scale of common ounces. Let Helen go, he says. And Helenus, who's also one of the sons of Priam and, and a priest, uh, he, he seconds Hector's decision or choice. We should let Helen go. And Troilus just is outraged by this. He says, he says what are we doing talking about reasons? about reason here when we have this other thing, which is honor. He says, if we talk of reason, let's shut our gates and sleep. Manhood and honor should have hair hearts, would they but fat their thoughts with this crammed reason. We can't talk about it. We have something else at stake here in this war, which is honor and distinction and manhood. And I'll paraphrase, Hector says, the, the thing we're fighting for should have some inherent value. It shouldn't just be in the eyes of the beholder. Is Helen worth all these corpses we're throwing at each other or not? And Troilus says, you've missed the point. Now, see, Troilus is saying, we've got to stay in this war. You'll remember, Troilus has been sitting out the war because he's been totally taken up with his, his love or lust or passion for Cressida. So here's the guy who's been sitting at home saying, hey, we can't quit this war. But Troilus says, no, we, it, we can't just walk away from it for the following reasons. He uses an analogy. I take today a wife, and my election is led on in the conduct of my will, my will enkindled by mine eyes and ears, true, two traded pilots twixt the dangerous shores of will and judgment. So you cho one chooses a wife, he says based on what we see and hear. 
how may I avoid, although my will distastes what it elected, the wife I chose? There can be no evasion to blench from this and to stand firm by honor. See, once I choose a wife, I can't just decide later on because I realize that it that the glow of the romance has faded and she's become just a person, you know, I can't just cast her away and find another. And he said, that's why we have to stay in this war because Helen is, we thought her beautiful and even if she's, you know, faded a little bit and so on, we have dedicated ourselves. To now, the irony, of course, is that he's using the metaphor of marital fidelity to justify the war which is being fought over the fact that his brother, Paris, abducted Helen from her husband. This is part of Shakespeare's constant play of irony here. But he says, it's honor that's at stake, and therefore we cannot quit this war. And he says, speaking of Helen, is she worth keeping? Why, she is a pearl whose price hath launched above a thousand ships and turned crown kings to merchants. Now, remember, that's what he had said about Cressida. He had said, of Cressida now, her bed is India, there she lies, a pearl between our Ilium and where she resides. Let it be called the wild and wandering flood, ourself the merchant, and this sailing pander, our doubtful hope, our convoy, and our bark. Same metaphor. A pearl across the ocean, and we're merchants. Now, I think it's very important. I'm going to do a little midrash on this passage here. Why, she, Helen, she is a pearl whose price hath launched above a thousand ships and turned crown kings to merchants. For me, that line raises the whole problem with the mimetic crisis. This, is, this does not qualify as, as interpretation. This is one of those midrash. It's like dreaming the dream onward. We are all crowned kings. That's what the New Testament says. We are all crowned kings. We are royalty. We are all sons and daughters of the Godhead. So inherently, we have, we, we are ultimately authorized, legitimized, distinguished, inherently. We don't have to mess with the social order. It is right there. But what is it that turns crown kings into merchants? Then we ask the problem. This, this is synonymous with the question, why do we abandon worthy stories in favor of dubious plots? What is it that turns crown kings into merchants? That is to say, people who, who, who grapple with each other in the bazaar. I like the pun on that one. People who grapple with each other in the bazaar and try to cut deals to make sure they come out okay. The mimetic enticement here represented by Helen turns crown kings into merchants. Now, at the deepest spiritual level, that's our problem. Cassandra comes in. Now, you know Cassandra is the prophetess who's been given the power to see the future and has been cursed uh, with the fact that nobody will believe her. She comes in raving, and she says, let us pay betimes a moody of that mass of moan to come. Our, this is Cassandra still speaking, our firebrand brother, Paris, burns us all. Cry, Trojans, cry, a Helen and a woe. Cry, cry, Troy burns, or else let Helen go. 
And Hector says, okay, brothers, what do you think of that? That's the latest news. You have, you, does it change your mind at all? Trollus says, absolutely not. Her brain-sick raptures cannot distaste the goodness of a quarrel which hath our several honors all engaged to make it gracious. This, has, this is a thing of honor. Now, we have to read that as distinction. This is what gives us distinction. That's why we participate in this ritual. Hector says, he, he hears Paris and Troilus, and he says, you're both young. You're, you, you're not prepared for philosophical thought. You can't understand Aristotle, he said. What you understand is, is pleasure and revenge. That's what you understand. But there is something else we have to consider. And if it's wrong to have taken Helen from Menelaus, it's wrong to keep her. Simplest syllogism in the world. Paris had said the other way. Paris and Trollus had said the other way around. Uh, we want we want to make the the stealing of her legitimate by keeping her. Hector says you can't do that. If it was wrong to take her, it's wrong to keep her. He says thus to persist in doing wrong extenuates not wrong but makes it much more heavy. Hector's opinion is this in way of truth. Next word, yet nevertheless. My sprightly brethren, I propend to you in resolution to keep Helen still. For tis a cause that hath no mean dependence upon our joint and several dignity. And dignity is just another word for honor. He understands it all. But in the end, against the grain of his whole logical development, he says we'll keep her. Why? Because we need her to generate this system of distinctions which, on which our culture depends. And Troilus says, in response to Hector's conclusion that they keep Helen, Troilus says, why there you touch the life of our design. The life of our design. You went right to the core. Honor. Were it not glory, Troilus says, were it not glory that we more affected than the performance of our heaving spleens, I would not wish a drop of Trojan blood spent more in her defense. But, worthy Hector, she is a theme of honor and renown, a spur to valiant and magnanimous deeds whose present courage may beat down our foes and fame in time to come canonize us. He says, I realize she's insignificant. But we need her as the, as, the, as the excuse for this combat. It's really not about her. And we all know that. It's, it, but it gives us an opportunity to distinguish ourselves and to go home to a ticker tape parade. In the next scene, Thersites makes a comment which must be cast back on all of this. He says, All the argument is a whore and a cockold, a good quarrel to draw emulous factions and bleed to death upon. War and lechery confound it all. I, th there's the line for you, see. A good quarrel to draw emulous factions and to bleed to death upon. That's what it's all about. Act 3, scene 1, has Pandarus, Helen, and Paris. Pandarus, the great go-between, the sower of mimetic desire, to use a Girardian term. And now he's with the two, the two illicit uh, lovers, 
Helen and Paris. And Pandora says, I'll sing you a song now. And Helen says, let thy song be love. This love will undo us all, speaking in a sort of prophetic way that she knows not about. Let thy song be love. This love will undo us all. Oh, Cupid, Cupid, Cupid. And Paris says, Ah, good now, love, love, nothing but love. Then what they're really talking about is passionate desire. But it goes by the name of love occasionally. And Pandora says, in good troth, it begins so. Love, love, nothing but love, still love, still more. For oh, love's bow shoots buck and doe. The shaft confounds, not that it wounds, but tickles still the sore. It's like a narcotic. It numbs. And we don't know that we're wounded. It's like the potion. In the, in the myths, it's often the potion or the arrow, which is always, the implication is always the arrow's been dipped in something. You see, Something's inter, Something enters into our bloodstream and, and this passion arises, which is inexplicable. We don't know where it came from. And Paris hears this and he says, he says to Helen, speaking of Pandarus, he eats nothing but doves, love. And that breeds hot blood, and hot blood begets hot thoughts, and hot thoughts beget hot deeds, and hot deeds is love. And Pandora says, is this the generation of love? Hot blood, hot thoughts, hot deeds? Why, they are vipers. Is love a generation of vipers? See, what comes from this romantic myth? What kind of mimetic crisis is, is set in motion by this kind of triangular fascination, the siege of Troy? Exactly. What comes of it when a Paris and a Menelaus vie with each other for a Helen? That's the basic triangular pattern. What, and it gener, it's the engine of passionate romance. And what comes of it is terrible stuff. He says... Is love a generation of vipers? And he's playing around with the story in Matthew where the Pharisees and Sadducees come down to get baptized. And Jesus calls them a generation of vipers, a brood of vipers, because they have come down to the baptismal waters without repentance. And this, I think, this is another midrash, but this, I think, is the problem. To come down to the baptismal waters, which is to say the, the waters of undifferentiation. See, baptism is the is the experience of dissolving all of those distinctions that, that you acquired vis-a-vis -vis the social order because they're, they're fundamentally insubstantial. But because your whole identity is caught up in them, we must submit to the waters of baptism and just have them dissolve and then come, and then on the basis of a metanoia, a, a, a transformation of our of our whole consciousness, start to experience life differently. See? Well, Jesus says in this passage, don't come to the waters of undifferentiation without a metanoia. Because why? Because if you enter into the waters of undifferentiation with the same old mind, what will come of it is a sacrificial crisis you will eventually demand a victim in order to create a new distinction 
from which you can elaborate all the rest of the social distinctions and start culture all over again. If you go into the waters of undifferentiation without a metanoia, watch out. And this is key for us today because there are so many paths into the waters of undifferentiation that seem maybe at first blush to be baptismal ones. But we have this injunction here. You better experience a metanoia before you enter the waters of undifferentiation. In the next scene, Pandarus is with Troilus and Cressida. And this is an application of what was learned in the scene before about the warning of entering the, the undifferentiated waters without a metanoia. And in this one, P Pandarus uh, says to Troilus' servant, uh, where's Troilus, uh, over at Cressida's house? No, he's waiting for you to take him there. Why can't he walk there on his own? No, he must have Pandarus. And uh, Pandarus, uh, Troilus comes in and Pandarus says, uh, have you seen my cousin? No, Pandarus, I stalk about her door like a strange soul upon the Stygian banks straying for waftage. Oh, be thou my Sharon, and give me swift transportance to those fields where I may wallow in the lily beds proposed for the deserver. Isn't that amazing? Suddenly, it's no longer the vast ocean. Remember the vast ocean? Carry him across the vast ocean. And it's not the baptismal waters. It's the river of hell, the river of sticks. And he says, carry me across. Be my... The Charon is the, uh, is the ferryman across the river Styx. Ferry me across the river of, of uh, uh, death. Hanging around as though on the Stygian banks, trying to get over to the realm of the dead. This is what the waters of undifferentiation are like for those who have not experienced metanoia. Which makes one think of that last couplet in uh, Sonnet 129, Shakespeare's Sonnet 129. All this the world well knows, but none knows well to shun this heaven that leads men to this hell. In scene three of Act Three, we have now the Grecian uh, key figures in the Grecian camp assembled. And Ulysses... What can we say about this? The problem that the Greeks have is that, is that Achilles, Patroclus, and the Myrmidons are sitting out the war. Without them, they cannot, they cannot win the war with Troy. And that's really the, the cultural goal. So Ulysses, who, has under, who understands the, what we would call using Gerard terms, understands the whole process of mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, uh, uh, mimetic violence. And we say, well, how does he understand that? He's living 400 years before Girard uh, began to explicate. Well, he understands it because Girard learned it from Shakespeare. Okay. So, but he understands the, me the mechanisms that keep the social order fascinating. Uh, in understanding them, he understands their essentially arbitrary nature. In his speech on degree in Act One. He never says, this is absolutely holy, this is fundamental, we have to stick by this. He simply says, if we don't have it, if we don't have these distinctions, we'll be at each other's throats. He doesn't say they, they have any real significance. He just says we need them. Well, instead of turning his understanding of it 
into a larger understanding of what's really going on, he is now going to take his slightly more advanced understanding of it and manipulate the pieces on the board for his own purposes. And he tells his fellow uh, Greek uh, leaders to just casually stroll by Achilles' tent and uh, look at him in a sneering way or ignore him altogether. And he says, I'll come along a little bit after you and uh, strike up a conversation with Achilles. He says, I have derision medicinable to use between your strangeness and his pride. That's a wonderful term, isn't it? Derision medicinable. In other words, I'm going to infect him with, with uh, mimetic rivalry. And it's going to make him join our cause again. Derision medicinable. Now, you see, manipulators of these processes know about derision medicinable. This goes back to Girard saying, the all-purpose differentiating machine is beginning to look like a played-out toy, a primitive noisemaker, perhaps, that must be agitated more and more wildly to keep the pub public and even its own users at least mildly interested. Well, what Ulysses is doing here is agitating the primitive noisemaker what he calls derision medicinable to get Achilles back into the, into the game. Achilles notices that they are not regarding him with the awe that he's accustomed to. And he says, I wonder what's gone wrong here. They're not looking over here. Fortune and I, he says, are friends. I do enjoy at ample point all that I did possess, save these men's looks. Nothing has changed say these men's looks why should I be bothered you see that's the key to the whole and it's exactly what Ulysses understands Ulysses understands it's all done with mirrors but instead of saying hey folks it's all done with mirrors he's carefully arranging the mirrors to get exactly the angle he wants to get and, and Achilles says I have everything I ever had save these men's looks What's going on here? And at that point, Ulysses walks by. And, and uh, Achilles says, Ulysses, hi there. How you doing? What are you reading? And this is funny. He says, what are you reading? And guess what? He's reading Girard. <laughs> <laughs> he says, a strange fellow here writes me. Uh, but the interesting thing, almost the troubling thing, he says, is the author's drift. This is Shakespeare, of course, talking about himself. The author's drift, who in his circumstance expressly proves that no man is the lord of anything, though in and out of him there be much consisting, till he communicate his parts to others. Nor doth he of himself know them for aught, till he behold them formed in the applause where they are extended. So it's all, you can have whatever you have, but it, unless it's, it's appreciated by the, by the proper members of the social order, it doesn't do you any good. And at that point he says, and by the way, these same men who are not giving you much attention these days are slapping Ajax on the back. They think he's wonderful. And so you can see Achilles, you can see his face changing expressions at that very moment. And Ulysses says, Perseverance, dear my lord, keeps honor bright, for honor travels in a strait so narrow where one but goes abreast. Okay. 
There's only one position at the top. And if it's the hierarchical order of things, then everybody wants to inch up on that one. See? I had this cartoon someplace over there in the file that shows this guy at the big picture window at the in a big uh, office on the 30th floor, desk half an acre big, you know, and there's a little guy standing in front of him, and he says, well, J.B., are you satisfied with being at the top or do you want to be at the tippy top? <laughs> For honor travels in a strait so narrow where one but goes abreast. Keep then the path for emulation, which is Shakespeare's word for mimetic desire. It's an absolute strict translation of mimetic desire. Keep then the path, for emulation hath a thousand sons that one by one pursue. If you give way or hedge aside from the direct forthright like an entered tide, they all rush by and leave you hindmost. Or... Like a gallant horse fallen in the first rank, lie there for pavement to the abject rear or run and trampled on. Then what they do in present, though less than yours in past, must o'ertop yours. For time is like a fashionable host that slightly shakes his parting guest by the hand and with his arms outstretched as he would fly, grasp the comer. The welcome ever smiles. The farewell goes out sighing. This is a wonderful image, you see. Time is like the, is like the uh, fashionable host who when you leave, says, oh, glad you came, goodbye. And, but when you show up, oh, so nice to see you. <laughs> so those who are parting the scene, they get this little limp handshake, right? But those that are coming on, those that are the up and coming one, they get the whole deal. And so he says, let not virtue seek remuneration for the thing it was, for beauty, wit, high birth, vigor of bone, desert and service, love, friendship, charity are subjects all to envious and calumnating time. I feel like I want to read this because it's just so amazing about the social order. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin that all with one consent praise newborn gods, trinkets, see, whatever's new, the latest fashion though they be made and molded of things past, and give to dust that is a little guilt more laud than guilt or dusted. There may be a little piece of metaphysics in those, that couplet there, but what it says is, uh, gives, to guilt, gives to dust that is a little guilt more laud than guilt or dusted. It means that it gives, that, that it, it's uh, more taken by dust that's gilded gold than by real gold that's gathered a little dust. <laughs> I mean, that's, see, that's what fashion is all about. That's what, uh, so the whole point of it is, you can't, this game, see, once we're, once the competitive game is going, there is absolutely no rest. Because you may make some progress in terms of working your way up the ladder, but there's always these hungry ones behind you. And if you slow down or pause or sit it out for a while, they'll pass you right by. It's very exhausting to read this, you see. Just no end to it. And Achilles says, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to do it. I have other private reasons, he says. And Ulysses says, well, I, I know your private reasons as well. 
you're in love with one of Priam's daughters, Polixena. Now, this part of the story is he's in love with Polixena. But Achilles says, how did you know? Now, see, strangely, Achilles is in the same position as, as Romeo. He's in love with the daughter of the rival clan. It's exactly the Romeo dilemma. And so Achilles says, how did you know? And the answer, of course, is because Ulysses is a creation of the, of the writer who wrote Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> That's how he knows. Because he understands how these things work. He understands how these things work. That's how he knows. Because How did you know? And Ulysses says, is that a wonder? The providence that's in a watchful state keeps place with thought and almost like the gods does thoughts unveil in their dumb cradles. And get this, he says, Ulysses says, there's a mystery with whom relation durst never meddle in the soul of state, which hath an operation more divine than breath or pen can give expression to. Now this is a response to how did you know? This phrase, with whom relation durst never meddle, means there is a mystery which we never relate. Those who know it never talk about it. Which hath an operation more divine than breath or pen can give expression to. And I think this is William Shakespeare tipping his hand. It's his way of saying the reason Ulysses knows about Achilles' love of Polixena is because Ulysses, because Shakespeare poured it into his head, understands the whole mimetic operation and understands how convenient it is for the warrior of one clan to fall in love with the daughter of another clan because it creates the energies of passionate romance. It's so the energies are there as long as there's, as long as there's attraction and some kind of obstacle. Perhaps the one thing we can do is to, is to discover a, a God-centeredness or Christ-centeredness that is the antidote to the, the fix. Not to ignore the larger social and cultural questions by any means, but to, to recognize that really that's where each of us gets... Uh, terrorized by the social system into, into uh, participating in sacrificial activity because uh, our, our, our whole identity is tied up with it. And if we can, if we can discover an identity that is not, uh, we don't have to go around thumbing our nose at the social system. We can be there and behave ourselves just in the way that the Decassade describes these uh, contemplatives. We can do the right thing and so on, but never be ov overly agitated about the judgment of the social system. The, I'd like, that's really the place to go back to for me, is that moment when Achilles looks out and he says, nothing's changed save these men's looks. And if we could imagine an Achilles at that moment who is grounded in something other than the social order, what's it to him? You see? Then he said, oh, well, this is the, the yesterday it was applause and today it's, uh, it's booze. So what? And not in a cynical way, not in a defensive way, you know, not in a, in a hateful way, but just 
you know, this social order giveth and the social order taketh away, and there you have it. But he's not, because he's invested in it. His whole identity is caught up in that. And he doesn't have that other sense of thing. But you know, it's so much a part of, this is why I was struck by Gerard saying, if our thought can survive the collapse of the culture, because we are creatures of that cultural imprint. Sebastian Moore says, sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. And in that sense, we live in sin. Like I say to my children, my job with respect to you is to love you in such a way that when you're, when you're ready for it, you will feel God's love. And feeling God's love, you won't be such craven slave to the, to the crumbs that the social order throws you away. And there, to, in a way, that's the, that's the whole Christian economy right there. If we can somehow communicate to one another, a mediate for one another, a, a sense of being loved that is not, that is agape, that is independent of the social distinctions, that doesn't depend upon them at all, it's not being, it's unconditional love, it's not love that's because you did this or so on. but just love because you are you're God's one of God's creatures if we can communicate that to one another we in a sense uh, free one another from from uh, from the the, uh, the the petty terror of uh, of the social order and it's and it's little promotions and demotions